Hello everybody, Julian Charles here of TheMindRenewed.com, podcasting to you as usual from the depths of the Lancashire countryside here in the UK. Today is the 16th of September 2015 and I'm very pleased indeed to welcome back to the programme for now uh, the third time uh, on The Mind Renewed, Patrick Wood of the August Forecast and August Review who joined us previously to talk about the Trilateral Commission and its vision for a new economic world order and also to discuss his very intriguing and important book Technocracy Rising published in December 2014 which if if you still haven't read it you have to go and read it. I'm going to say again, you have to go and read it. I highly recommend that uh, you go and get that book. Now, Patrick Wood, who joined us last year to talk about the Trilateral Commission, um, is editor of the August Forecast, which analyzes current trends in economics and politics, and editor of the August Review, which is more of an, uh, an historical analysis of globalism and its elite. And he's been an investment advisor since the mid-1970s and co-authored the famous two-volume book with Anthony Sutton called Trilaterals Over Washington. Pat, welcome back to The Mind Renewed. It's good to be speaking with you again. Thank you for having me back, Julian. I really appreciate it. Yeah, well, it is always a great pleasure to speak with you. And of course, this time, it's uh, slightly unusual in that my invitation to you to join us on the program is really a response to an alert that you put out several days ago about an event that's going to be happening in the very near future, just over a week from now. And that's the so-called Summit for the Adoption of Post-2015 Development Agenda, or it has a more uh, friendly way of talking about it, called uh, the UN Sustainable Development Summit. And that's going to be held between the 25th and 27th of September in New York. And the agenda that they're going to be talking about, and which the majority of the world looks like it's going to be signing up to, is called Transforming Our World, the 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development. And that's also got a, a nicer way of referring to it as just the 2030 Agenda. Um, that immediately brings to mind Agenda 21, which uh, no doubt we'll say something about. So that's what's going to be happening. That's what they're going to be signing up to and therefore signing us all up to, in a sense. So as I say, Pat, you put the alert out. So perhaps you could tell us what is this summit and why should we even be concerned about it? Well, I'll tell you what really alerted me to the timetable of things happening at the United Nations right now started with a press conference earlier this year that was held by Christiana Figueres. She's the executive secretary of the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. The acronym of that is the uh, UNF Triple C. <laughs> Good. I'm glad there are better ways to refer to things, though. Otherwise, it would just be unmanageable. Yeah. <laughs> Alphabet soup. But what that means is she's numero uno. You know, she's the big cheese for climate change at the United Nations. And she had a, a press conference in February, and she said, and I quote, this is the first time in the history of mankind that we are setting ourselves the task of intentionally, within a defined period of time, to change the economic development model that has been reigning for at least 150 years since the Industrial Revolution. She also said in that same press conference, this is probably the most difficult task we've ever given ourselves, which is to intentionally transform the economic development model for the first time in human history. Now, she understood the scope of what the United Nations is doing. For the first time in human history, man is attempting namely the United Nations, is attempting to change the economic development model to throw out capitalism and free enterprise and to implement, in its place, sustainable development. They call that their green economy. I call it technocracy. 
because that's exactly what it is. It's warmed over technocracy from the 1930s, and it's been implemented methodically over the last 40 years by members of the Trilateral Commission. They're the ones that promoted this concept starting back in 1973 when they pledged to create their new international economic order. So we look at this today. We look at sustainable development, which is an economic term, by the way. It's not a political term. Development means business. That's why business is involved in it. You might think or wonder, well, is the United Nations supposed to have something to do with politics? Yes, (laughs) that's what it was originally convened for. But now we find that the United Nations has been co-opted to attempt to implement a new economic system in the world that's never been tried before, ever. And so Figueres let the cat out of the bag. Capitalism is on the chopping block. They have a defined period of time, a timetable, in other words, that they're going to accomplish this. And she didn't lay out the whole timetable back then, but a little bit of digging came up pretty clear pretty quickly what was going on. And this meeting that's taking place in New York City, I believe, is on that timetable. Is uh, Cristiano Figueres a member of the Trilateral Commission? No, she's not. But we find members of the commission sprinkled throughout this whole thing. Mm. It's interesting, the United Nations internally calls the 2030 agenda, and this is the quoted phrase, they call it the people's agenda. Internally, the people's agenda. Sounds kind of like something out of, I don't know, the Soviet Union or something. I don't know, back in the day. Yeah. Uh, but the people's agenda is called that to try and convince people that all the people of the world have input into this. You know, like it was something they created. And even if uh, you didn't personally get a phone call from somebody like Figueres to get your input, you can be sure that people like you contributed to the discussion and that whatever the heck the people's agenda is, it's wonderful and you shouldn't question it. It's the people's agenda after all. So this document right now that they brought to the table, the 2030 agenda document, that's a very specific document. Your listeners can go search for it on the, on the Internet. They'll find it very quickly on the United Nations website. They can download it, and they can read it for themselves. It's not a difficult read, not a long read, but it's a commitment paper that they're going to ask all the nations of the world to sign. And they're calling it a politically binding agreement, not necessarily a legally binding agreement. Uh, So our president uh, has already pledged he will sign it, and Congress will not have any part of it. It's just going to be signed, and that's it. And... The September 25 meeting is only a stepping stone to the next meeting that's taking place on November 30. That's just a little bit down the road. Uh, It's going to be a 10-day conference in Paris, and that conference is going to be called the Climate Change Conference. That's triple C, CCC. And the Climate Change Conference is going to be the conference that puts teeth into the Sustainable Development Summit, which is the one coming up on September 25. Now, Most of the people that are going to be signing this document on September 25 have no idea of how it's going to be implemented. There's lots of vague generalities within the document, and it doesn't give them many specifics, but they're going to learn the specifics at the climate change conference in Paris. And then from there, it's going to be a feeding frenzy all over the world as this whole thing takes effect on January 1, 2016. Now, that, this is beginning to sound like a timetable to me. Um, so I went back in time a little bit to find out where did this document come from? You know, who, who really did it? <laughs> like the who done it? It's like a mystery. 
was it really the people or was it something more narrow? And I found some interesting stuff. On June 26 of 2015, a couple of months ago, there was a conference called the High-Level Political Forum on Sustainable Development. I won't make an acronym out of that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, go on, go on. <laughs> At the end of that little forum, it wasn't really big, big thing. They had, I don't know, a couple, maybe a couple hundred people in it. The co-leaders pounded the gavel on the desk and they declared that the 2030 agenda document was formally accepted or received, I think is the word they used, by the United Nations. People cheered, you know, kind of threw the hat up in the air, so to speak, like at a graduation. Yay, everybody's so happy that uh, this had been accepted. And indeed, it was the same 2030 agenda document that's being presented on September 25. So this document was kind of set in concrete, if you will, on July 8th, which was the final day of that meeting, that that high-level political forum on sustainable development. And that was just a group of 27 elite individuals, you say? Well, actually, that was one step before that. Uh The high-level political forum on sustainable development basically just rubber-stamped what had been presented to them. It was like a formality. But the actual document was created starting in July of 2012 when the Secretary General of the United Nations assembled a group of 27 people Now, you have to listen to this title. This is the title of the group, these 27 people. It was called the High-Level Panel of Eminent Persons on the Post-2015 Development Agenda. Yeah. Actually, I went through to a page which is showing those 27 so-called eminent persons. And, uh, you know, I did notice that a lot of them were, you know, bureaucrats and administrators and economists and business people and diplomats and bankers. And I think one of them, at least one of them was a a member of the elders, uh, which you've talked about before. Um, So it certainly wasn't a, a group of scientists in general. Oh, no, no, not at all. It was political operatives. <laughs> but, yeah, I don't know how that title would fit on a business card. Um, <laughs> if, if you had a business card, it's like it would run off into the next county almost. But these 27 members, um, they were the ones that came up with this whole thing. that They met between July 2012 and May 30 of 2013. One of the members of that group, by the way, is 27 members, was John Podesta, who is a member of the Trilateral Commission. Uh, he's a strong man on climate change. And my guess is he was very influential in guiding and directing that whole panel of eminent persons. I, yeah, I'd like to say that kind of facetiously, too. You know, they, they call him the high-level panel of eminent persons. Yes, it's like, give me a break. <laughs> Are they, I mean, here's a bunch of people so stuck on themselves this is like the global elders concept, right? It's just like they, they think so highly of themselves that, well, we're not only eminent persons, but we've convened a high-level panel of ourselves. <laughs> yes, it, it rather reminds me of the uh, the Freemasons calling themselves worshipful master and that kind of thing. I know. It's, a, it's that's the same kind of terminology. So, in any case, the meeting concluded on May 30, 2013. And what they delivered was, and I quote, a new global partnership eradicate poverty, and transform economies through sustainable development, close quote. And that was a document that got passed to the next group that met this year on June 26, called the High-Level Political Forum on Sustainable Development, which branded it the 2030 Agenda. 
and accepted it to the UN as the official document. Okay. And this very much is connected to and as a continuation of the 1992 Earth Summit in Rio de Janeiro. Is that the case? Well, it is. Um, they state throughout their 2030 agenda document their complete support of Agenda 21 from Rio. They mention a number of other things that have happened along the way, like the Millennium Development Goals, MDGs, I think is what they talk internally, they call them the MDGs, and all of the other stuff, committees that have convened over time on sustainable development. They, they list all of those, say, we are in full agreement with all those things. We're, you know, this is an advancement to that. And essentially what the advancement is, the concept has not been changed at all. There's no substantive difference in the policy, but this is a timeline. Figueres calls it a timeline. That one, that quote I earlier about destroying capitalism. She says we have a defined period of time to do this, and here we have an acceleration of Agenda 21 to be accomplished by the year 2030. So it is still the Earth Charter kind of vision of things. One hundred. But now we've got a, an end point. We must try to achieve this by 2030. That's right. And originally, Agenda 21 was merely called the Agenda for the 21st Century. And, of course, a century is 100 years. So uh, there wasn't you know, a particular urgency to get it done by any particular time, you know, 2050 or 2075 or whatever. But to these people that want to get this done, the wheels of progress have turned too slowly. And so this is an attempt to speed up the process, to get real traction, to convert the world or flip the world, if you will, into this system of sustainable development. And I stress again, this is an economic transformation. There will be political transformation of necessity, but that's not what's driving this. What's driving this is economic transformation that I believe was originally suggested by the Trilateral Commission as being their new international economic order with emphasis on the word new. This is brand new. Christiana Figueri says that it's brand new. It's never been done in the history of the world. And in previous interviews, you have very clearly pinpointed this as a technocratic vision, which you say the Trilateral Commission took over from the failed attempt at technocracy in the 1930s. Um, Could you... Just for the sake of people who didn't hear those previous interviews, just give a, a very brief uh, reminder of what technocracy is so that we know what we have in view as we discuss this. Well, technocracy was a historic movement. I believe it was started, really, in the United States, officially, if you will, in 1932, when they found residency at Columbia University in New York City. And for a couple of reasons, they were ejected from Columbia. The two principals, M. King Hubbard and Howard Scott, formed a corporation in 1933 that was called Technocracy Incorporated. That membership organization, it was a membership organization, ultimately had over 500,000 card-carrying members across the United States and Canada. It was very popular. It was during a period of time where they believed that capitalism was dead, that politicians had failed, that the whole political system had failed. And they sought to turn over controls of the engine, the societal engine, to scientists and engineers. They had good reasons for that, I suppose. I mean, in their mind, they had good reasons. They felt, well, because technology now had come into society, technology that they had created, scientists and engineers, that the very fabric of society was changing and that politicians were unable to deal with it. So, hey, you know, give it back to the scientists and engineers. We'll fix it for you. We'll, we'll make it work the way it's supposed to work. So they set upon a huge social engineering project. 
they looked at society as an engineering project and said, how can we have an economic system that will serve the needs of the people, that will preserve the resources of the world, and that will provide the most efficiency for the operation of the system? And they defined that. They didn't have the technology to implement it in the 1930s, but they defined it very succinctly, and they told us exactly what had what would have to be done in order to create this system of technocracy. And I have to say, this is not socialism. It was not communism. They hated communists. They hated communism. This was an otherworldly type of economic system. It was a, it was a utopian economic system, if you will. Great promises, no means to deliver on the promise, however, and. They told people, hey, you can. You only have to work 20 hours a, day, a week in, in, a, in our technocracy system. And you'll have a comfortable living living income for the rest of your life. So, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, on the surface, it sounds very attractive. If you don't oh. think about it very deeply, oh, yeah. you don't reflect upon it very much. And yes, okay, so you would have lots of free time. And in fact, the best people, the scientists and the engineers would be in charge and make sure that everything was organized in accordance with the resources of the world to so make sure nothing runs out, everything's nicely distributed. I mean, on the surface, it sounds fantastic. But of course, it boils down to a scientific dictatorship. Dictatorship. That's exactly right. And that's what Aldous Huxley concluded in his book, A Brave New World, which was written in 1932, as he was looking straight into the face of technocracy. Um, at the same time, technocracy was generated here in the United States. We also found that it was generated virtually at the same time in uh, Germany. And of course, the 30s were a dark time for Germany. It was increasingly dark in Germany. But the technocrats found a foothold in what was soon to become Nazi Germany. Were they formally connected in any way? I can't, I could never create any, any organic connection between the two organizations, but the German unit of technocracy merely translated and reprinted all of the articles that appeared in the American chapter, if you will. So there was a connection, and they were ideologically on the same page, otherwise they wouldn't have just reprinted all the articles that appeared in the United States. But they were shut down uh, as an organization by Hitler himself, who took a dim view of any competition. And we find, looking backwards, that the technocrats continued to operate within Hitler's administration. They even communicated with each other. Some historians now have discovered that. And at the end of the war, as uh, all of the, the war criminals and the politicians that were involved in various and sundry things, they were trotted off to Nuremberg for trial for war crimes. The technocrats in that government were secreted off or taken away quietly, secretly, by a top-secret program called Operation Paperclip, which has now been made public, by the way. Now, all the papers are, are available for inspection, and people have, and they've written a couple of books about it already. But what happened with Operation Paperclip is 1,600 of these top technocrats were secretly taken out of the country at the end of World War II and brought mostly to the United States where they were given cushy jobs in scientific institutions, some in the military, some at universities, and so on. It was Werner von Braun, for instance, who came over in Operation Paperclip and eventually put a man on the moon for the United States. So these 1,600 technocrats were brought back to the United States. I, I, I speculate whether it would, would have been a, a big reunion for some of these people. You know? like, how's it going for you, man? I, you know, we've been watching from over here all during the war, and now you're free, you're back. You know, hey, let's have some beers, you know? <laughs> so we, we have a situation then where this idea isn't allowed to die off. It's being uh, sustained in various ways in various places in the world, and it's sort of coalescing now. Yes. 
And we, in any case, we find that the biggest difference in technocracy is that it proposed to use energy instead of money for the lifeblood of the economy. And energy, they said, was the, the essence of all work, ergs, if you will, or horsepower. And the way to administrate the scientific social engineering project would be to use energy as a, as a medium of exchange. So they envisioned just simply passing out energy credits to everybody in society, and they would be able to spend their energy credits on goods and services based on how much energy it took to make those goods and services. But there was no money, and there was no ability to create private property. There's no way to increase wealth as savings were out. Inheritance was out because you couldn't save anything anyway. Property rights were non-existent. You didn't need to own everything. The collective would own everything. Uh, that is all the resources of production. You know, it was a very totalitarian idea, model. Um, Brave New World, the book, I think, nailed it right on the, you know, right on the head. And and I want to say, too, that all engineers and all scientists are not technocrats. That's far from it. Sure. Uh, I know many people involved in hard sciences and <clears throat> and engineers who are, you know, civil engineers or whatever. They're not technocrats. They don't want to run the world. <laughs> They're just... It's like you and me. They're just good old people trying to get along, and they're they're contributing what they can to society. Absolutely. Yes, one has to be very careful with this kind of thing whenever you talk about scientists or engineers and sort of lump them all together. But as you say, people are people, and they have different roles in life, and some people have different ideologies from others. And I think you have to be very careful, so I'm glad you've made that point. That's right. And here's basically the, the heartbeat of it. The father of technocracy, philosophically, goes back to the late 1700s. Uh, with a French philosopher by the name of Henri de Saint-Simon. And he wrote in one of his papers, he was kind of the father of scientism as well as technocracy. He wrote, a scientist, my dear friends, is a man who foresees. It is because science provides the means to predict that it is useful, and the scientists are superior to all other men, close quote. That's a dark statement, yes, indeed. in my opinion. It's a religious statement because you know, basically is attributing to scientists the ability to see the future. This is very dangerous. Mm -hmm. And again, I think we need to reiterate that it's not because he's saying scientists. If he, he could be picking any particular group of people. He could be saying the historians are the superior men or the, the musicians, because <laughs> I'm a musician. Right. But in each case, it's a dangerous thing, isn't it? Because one putting one group above another and saying they are superior to everybody else. That's right. And very quickly, uh, I have to say that scientism is kind of the underlying philosophy that guides technocracy and everything that's going on at the United Nations right now, I might add. You know, scientists worship like a god. <clears throat> Everybody is saying, well, they're worshiping Mother Earth, you know, like Gaia, the Gaia concept. And, and yes, there's some truth to that. But if, if you're missing the fact that they're worshiping science, you're really missing the whole picture. Science is the thing that's lifted up as being immutable. It's become, it's very much become a religion. And both um, uh, St. Simon and his primary disciple, uh, August Comte, wrote about a priesthood of engineers that would administer science to society. <laughs> when you say your, your philosophy has a priesthood, it means that there's intermediaries set up, you know, like there's a priest that's going to go listen to the oracle of science. And then come back down the mountain and tell you and me, the masses, you know, the ignorant masses, what science said. <laughs> and, of course, it could be anything. They can make it say whatever they want and make the people do whatever they want. And this is the classic definition of a cult. 
And it's very interesting that in popular culture, it's very definitely the case that uh, scientists are looked upon in a quasi-priestly way, that whatever they say is the truth. They wield tremendous authority. I mean, you can watch a natural history program or something, or you know, some program about the, the wonders of the universe, and you catch the scientists out saying some preposterous things. But you just know the majority of people will take it as verbatim truth, what they've said, because they are, in quotes, a scientist, so therefore they know. That's right. Somehow they're above everybody else, which, of course, is what uh, St. Simone said way back when. And uh, the religious quality of this comes out when you consider that scientism and extrapolate that to technocracy and sustainable development, that it rejects any kind of inquiry that does not agree with it. This is also dangerous. In other words, when somebody makes a critique it's immediately rejected for no good reason, just rejected because it doesn't agree with their a priori position. Mm. And the other thing that nails it to being a religion is, is that it demands acceptance. It demands acceptance by non-scientists. Mm. You don't have a choice. Al Gore, member of the Trilateral Commission and the poster child for, uh, for climate change and for sustainable development, Al Gore said a few months ago that anybody that didn't agree with climate change was a denier. He used that as a, a term of derision. Absolutely. You're a denier. And he said that deniers deserve to be punished. Now, I don't like that kind of talk. See, he demands acceptance from non-scientists. That's us. He says, if you don't believe it, you're a denier. And if you're going to be a denier, you deserve to be punished. Yes, I, I find that most offensive, the use of the term denier. I know. It is. Very offensive. And of course, it does connote Holocaust deniers. No doubt about that. Exactly. Um, I mean, why not use the word skeptic? That would be a much more neutral term. But oh no, of course, it doesn't have those high moral tones about it. And it's interesting that I actually looked up Cristiana Fogueras and uh, saw a very small clip of her speaking. And uh, she was putting all this on moral terms, saying, you know, we have to do this. She was answering a question, I think, along the lines of, you know, why do we have to implement these UN uh, policies. And she was saying, well, we have to for the sake of future generations. You know, we, we, we must have this uh, ethical, I can't remember her exact words, but she was putting on that very ethical, moral line and saying that, you know, we, we, we can't eat now at the cost of people later, you know. But, and, and you felt, listening to it, you know, who could possibly disagree with that? Only the immoral, surely. That's right. Um, and, <laughs> and you don't have a choice but to agree uh, because they say the science is settled. There's never a door open to question the science. I counted one time, there's probably three to 5,000 scientists who are willing to promote climate change, global warming, that is man-caused. There's 30,000 that have signed a petition saying it's a bunch of bunk. There's not a general consensus, any way, shape, or form. Yet, they demand acceptance from everybody they talk to because they say it's settled. Well, it's very clear reading through these documents that you're talking about, which we'll go into a little bit more detail in a moment, that uh, there's no possibility of disagreement. It's written in the way of saying this is these are the problems that we face. These are the goals that we want to achieve. And we are committed to achieving this. And within that whole structure there, there's no possibility of saying, well, just a minute, I disagree with X, Y and Z because it's all set in stone. We are committed to it. Yes, that's exactly right. So it very much has a flavor of religion at this point. It's a religious proposition. The United Nations is promoting this basically as a religious proposition as well. They want you to believe it. They don't want you to question the facts behind it. They just want you to believe it. So if the 2030 agenda promises an end to poverty everywhere, which it does, and if the 2030 agenda promises lifelong opportunities for all, which it does, <laughs> and if yeah. it promises a disease will be eradicated, especially in the third world for all, which it does, 
Uh, these are promises that are laid out there with not one even close suggestion on how it can be achieved. It's merely a grandiose platitude laid on the table to deceive people and saying, oh, my gosh, I want to eradicate poverty. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it's clearly sort of, it's like it's setting out the kingdom of God on earth. And in a way, you know, how could you disagree with that? You've got these 17 sustainable development goals and these 169 targets of how to get there. And when you read through these goals, I mean, there's no way that anybody in their right mind could disagree with them as goals to be achieved. Now, how you get there is a different matter, but let me just read some of them. End poverty in all its forms everywhere. End hunger. Achieve food security. Ensure healthy lives. Quality education. Gender equality. uh, Sustainable management of water and sanitation for all. Resilient infrastructure. Reduce inequality. Make cities uh, inclusive, safe, resilient, sustainable, and on and on and on it goes. It just seems to be covering virtually everything. And when you look at it, when I look at it, I think heaven on earth. But as you say, when you go into the detail of actually how they're going to achieve this, it's, well, I mean, they do have some suggestions, but those suggestions are really quite vague. And you, you know, you're struggling to find some detail that will show you some practical ways of achieving this. Yes. Well, you see, this is what, when the original Agenda 21 document was published, and I think the book actually came out in 1993, but when it was published, it was it was a relatively small book. It was, oh, I want to say, close to 300 pages long. They had some specifics in it, but it wasn't enough specifics really to sink your teeth into it. Within a short period of time, however, the Global Biodiversity Assessment Book was produced, a working manual, if you will, to implement Agenda 21. This book, by comparison, was 1,200 pages long. Then there was another book that came out right after that called The Cultural and Spiritual Values of Biodiversity. That was a 600-page book. And there's been other books come out after that that declare exactly what this means. And if you read through a book like The Global Biodiversity Assessment, that's produced by the United Nations, it'll make your hair stand on end. The specifics will make your hair stand on end. They're declaring things to be unsustainable that you just say, What? How could that be unsustainable? How, you know, golf courses are unsustainable. Well, gee, people like to play golf. You're just going to shut down all the golf courses in the world? Well, that's what they like to do. <laughs> well, I, I personally wouldn't mind, but that's a different matter. <laughs> I know. No, I don't want to shut. You know, I don't play golf. I'm speaking a little rhetorically, but I know people that do. And they say, wait a minute. But listen, what they say in uh, paragraph 28 of that document you're reading from, the 2030 Agenda. This is a quote from it. It's a short paragraph. It says, we commit to making fundamental changes in the way that our societies produce and consume goods and services. Governments, international organizations, the business sector, and other non-state actors and individuals must contribute to changing unsustainable consumption and production patterns to move towards more sustainable patterns of consumption and production. All of this has to do with economics. What they're saying is is that the world is going to have to radically change the way it makes goods and change the way it consumes goods. Now, forget the producers for a minute. Just look at the consumers. The consumers are expected to radically change their lifestyle in order to become, quote-unquote, sustainable for the global good. So in, in America, for instance, we have a love affair with automobiles. Agenda 21 would have people give up their big cars and drive itty-bitty cars, if at all. They'd like people not to have cars at all, if possible. 
they would rather people ride bikes and take light rail to work, and therefore they would have no need of owning an automobile. Well, this is not right. This kind of thinking that somebody can, one person can lord it over another person because their carbon footprint is too high is just absurd. And yet that's exactly what the United Nations is attempting to do with sustainable development on a global basis. Although, to put the other side of this, let's put it this way, you could say that there is a great deal of waste in the world and people do over-consume. So maybe we can't just rely on people to unilaterally say, well, I'm going to consume less. Somebody uh, has to say uh, it's necessary for you to do so for the good of the environment and perhaps to legislate in that direction. Now, I'm just putting that as the opposite point of view. So is that all wrong? Well, let me put it this way. Private property is the engine of prosperity in a free enterprise economic system. The ability of a person to own and manage property for their own behalf has been a precious right historically, especially for England, United States, Europe, basically the whole world, really. Wherever property rights have existed, those economies have excelled. But Agenda 21 and and sustainable development promotes the idea that you and I are too ignorant and or selfish to be able to own private property and care for it responsibly. So they say, no, you shouldn't have property rights. You're not capable of handling private property. So give those rights to us and we, the United Nations or the Trilateral Commission or whoever would put themselves in the the elite driver's seat, we will take care of those things for you and we will manage those things responsibly. Now, you see, the problem here is, wait a minute, aren't you human just like us? Or are you from an alien from outer space or something that you're different than us? But you see, they fall into the scientism trap that St. Simone talked about, mm. that scientists are, all, are superior to all other men. They really believe that they can do what you can't do for the global good. And that's absolute nonsense. It's foolishness. But when you look at their documents, they suggest that they're going to somehow... Uh, respect private property and they're going to respect sovereign statehood as well i don't quite know how they can achieve that with everything they want to bring to pass which is another matter but at least they say that they do value those things well you know there's been lip service along the way to deflect criticism but if you go back and read the core documents of the united nations including the agenda 21 book it was produced by unep United Nations Environmental Program at the United Nations. It's their moniker on the front of it. You go read that book and you'll find that private property is a no-no. They absolutely are bent on killing the concept of private property. All the resources of the world, eventually, the desirable thing for them is that they would all be held in a common trust for the global good and that there would be a relatively small committee of people managing that trust making decisions on who would be able to access resources of the earth. You and I, if we wanted to start a business, probably would never get uh, our application even, you know, read. (laughs) But for the crony globalists, they would pretty much have free access to it to do whatever they want to do. 
Right. Well, now this is interesting because I wanted to bring up an article which I did mention to you shortly before the interview, which actually touches on this idea of business and ownership and the like. And uh, this is an article by Nafis Ahmed, and he's looking at the 2030 agenda and this summit. And the actual article is called UN Plan to Save Earth is Fig Leaf for Big Business Insiders. Why the Sustainable Development Agenda is Fundamentally Compromised by Corporate interests. Now, I'm going to bring this up because, of course, you know, what we've been talking about so far seems to fit very much with this technocratic view, which would look on the surface as if it has nothing to do with business, at least as normally understood in a free market sense. And yet, Nafis Ahmed is bringing up corporate interests here. So, if uh, we're talking about technocracy as this ultimate vision we have perhaps something that seems to contradict it here with Nafis Ahmed's analysis of the situation. So, I mean, in this piece, he argues that global corporations like Statoil USA, Tullow Oil, Bridgestone Corporation, Eaton Corporation, Monsanto, Thames Bank, Bank of America, Coca-Cola, Walt Disney, Dow Chemical, and he says hundreds of others are among the groups, major groups, as apparently that's an official title, major groups that are engaged in this sustainable development goal process, and that they, these corporations, are actually very happy with the way things are going. Now, if they're very happy on the surface, that looks as if this is a very business orientated thing which would therefore obviously believe in private ownership and free market and all that kind of thing so my question is do you think that Nafis Ahmed's observations here are on track or do you think that he's perhaps missing something I think he's missing something he's on track but I don't think his vision is quite specific enough and the reason I say that is that I haven't done a study of the companies he mentioned, whatever. It would be interesting to do this, but I haven't. So I can't vouch for specific names. But if we go back to the Trilateral Commission, which is, again, founded in 1973 by Brzezinski and Rockefeller, they have had over the years membership drawn from the corporate world. And companies that have directors who are members of the Trilateral Commission have routinely found themselves in positions of favor around the world for all kinds of deals. And we documented that in our original book, Trilaterals Over Washington. Uh, Sutton was a master at digging out the records that demonstrated this network of corporate interest and how they used that network to always make sure they got the payoff and everybody else got hosed. <laughs> and, and by the way, it was John D. Rockefeller, I believe, who said that comp- originally said that competition was a sin. This attitude just kind of persists in the Trilateral Commission. They love monopoly. They would love to have everything in a a monopoly to them if they could and everybody else out of the picture. We documented the corporate network and how they fit into the Trilateral Commission and how they were always the ones that had the – they were at the contract signing table before anybody else uh, to get the big deals. So – I expect fully that the, since the Trilateral Commission has backed all of this stuff, including up and through the 2030 agenda, that yes, the Trilateral companies are going to be thrilled because this is what they've been pushing for for 40 years. This is their new international economic order. They figured out how, how there's going to be payola for them. They don't care about whether we get anything out of it, but they know how they're going to get something out of it. And so you find organizations like the, you know, the International Chamber of Commerce and, the, uh, you know, other big trade organizations and stuff. They're all, they, they all pledge support for this stuff. 
which tells you that the 2030 agenda may really just be a little disingenuous. You know, you think, wait a minute, <laughs> uh, there's strange bedfellows mm. here. Why, why are they? Well, sharing? that's right, because Nafis Ahmed does uh, say that, I mean, he quotes somebody saying this process is a sham. They will co-opt our engagement and say they've consulted all of us, all, all of the civil society groups that have tried to reform the sustainable development uh, goals have been co-opted by the UN, including the more critical voices. So, you know, it's giving the impression that all this do-goodery is, in fact, not what it seems to be. Well, it isn't. What it is, um, you know, forgetting all the platitudes and the utopian statements and stuff, forgetting all that stuff, the basic bottom-line takeaway for sustainable development is modifying production and consumption. That is the play field of the global elite corporate world, manipulating production and consumption. They want to micromanage it. Remember, back in 1970, when Zbigniew Brzezinski wrote his book called Between Two Ages, the subtitle America's Role in the Technotronic Era, I discovered later when I discovered technocracy that he really was talking about technocracy in this book. The themes and the concepts matched up perfectly to the 1930s. Brzezinski also happened to be at Columbia University when he wrote the book. But in any case, he said, this was back, way back in 1970. He said, quote, the nation state as a fundamental unit of man's organized life has ceased to be the principal creative force. International banks and multinational corporations are acting and planning in terms that are far in advance of the political concept of the nation state. Now, that was insightful and maybe it was visionary. I don't think it's predicting the future, but it was very insightful on his part to write that because he was in the middle of it. Uh, Rockefeller loved that kind of statement. That's, I think, that's one reason they got together. <laughs> he said, you know, Brzezinski was Rockefeller's kind of guy. <laughs> he says, I like your talk, man. International Bank. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that's me. Um, sure, sure. So what we're looking at then is not really business as usual, at least not as we would normally look at it, but really as essentially a power grab ultimately. Right so that what you might think of as the normal processes of business would be ultimately looking towards just simply being in control of everything. That's right. That's exactly right. I, I, I think the end game of this whole thing is to capture the physical resources of the world and put it into a global common trust or, or just owned by a few, very few number of people in general. We see this move all throughout the world to, to twist property into either government hands or into the United Nations hands itself. Here in America, for instance, we have the Bureau of Land Management, we have the, the Park Service and so on that just just routinely go out and grab up millions of acres, take them offline from any production. They, you know, you can't, can't log them, you take lumber out of them, you can't go in and mine things in the ground or whatever. They just basically shut the roads down so you can't get in and say, you ain't going in there anymore. You know, you go into other uh, to other countries like in Africa where they're so far in debt that they can't see their way out ever. The United Nations has the brass to go out now and talk to those very same countries on behalf of the bankers and the uh, you know, other governments that, that owed the money. And they say, look, we'll, we'll make you a deal. We'll co- they call it land for debt. In other words, we'll forgive your debt or a portion of it if you cede your land to us or certain rights to your land, to us. And it's like, gee, you know, these are the same people that got them in debt in the first place, and now they're going in and they're, they're talking them out of it. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll let your debt go, but you have to give us these, you know, a few million acres of prime development land or, you know, resource land or something. 
This is going on all over the world. Sure, this is the uh, Confessions of the Economic Hitman, isn't it, by it is. John Perkins? It's exactly that right. same process. Yeah. This is happening yeah. all over the world. It's not. It's nothing new. This is not a new process that I'm describing here, but it's accelerating. And you say, mm. what's the end game of this? What are they doing this for? Well, every time they get a new piece of resource, a physical resource, they're transferring the ability to create value and wealth to somebody else. It's redistribution of wealth in a sense, not socialism type of redistribution. Mm. I, I think that I think this is so difficult to comprehend because we're so schooled in thinking in terms of bureaucracy tending towards a more sort of socialist view of things and big business and business in general being, uh, you know, sort of free market and those two things being intention. And yet here the vision, certainly if you turn to the uh, Addis Ababa action agenda, which is linked to what we're talking about, very definitely it says it's very much linked in there. It's talking more in terms of a massive web in which business and bureaucracy and civil society are all interconnected and functioning as one unit. And so it looks very much as if the big corporate world is intrinsic to this whole process. And there are a lot of things in that Addis Ababa document that make that very clear. I mean, you might think, well, why does business want to invest in areas critical to sustainable development? Doesn't seem immediately obvious. Why would they want to shift to more sustainable production patterns, etc.? And then when you read a little bit more deeply into that document, you find the answer is that they're going to be incentivized to do so. And so they're going to be working inefficiently from a market economics point of view, but it's going to be governments that are going to incentivize them to do that. And so the cost is going to fall on all of us as taxation, I presume. Uh, it is. And the United, as the United Nations pushes this program out to the whole world, they're talking about the overall investment that's going to be needed to fund sustainable development is in the multiple trillions of dollars. We're talking perhaps 25 to 30 trillion dollars. <laughs> That's a lot of money. I'm not at all surprised to hear that because I've mentioned a couple of times on this show that at the beginning of 2013, there was a meeting in Davos and I think it was The Independent that reported on this. Yes, it was The Independent. Yes. And it said that at that time anyway, they were talking about 14 trillion dollars being earmarked for yep. the greening of the global economy. And when you look at what that meant, certainly in this report, anyway, this guy here, Mr. Calderon, the uh, previous president of Mexico, was calling for, um, let, let me just quote from the article. Mr. Calderon is calling on the UK government and other members of the G20 to unleash a wave of private investment in green infrastructure by giving potential backers of low-carbon projects the confidence and incentives to step up their spending. And if you wonder, well, what, what do confidence and incentives mean? And he carries on. Uh, the alliance, which includes the World Bank, Deutsche Bank, and the European Bank of Reconstruction Development, proposes that governments use public money to give guarantees, insurance, and incentives to potential low-carbon investors at the same time as phasing out fossil fuels, etc., etc., etc. So it looks as if all this supposedly private activity is going to be underwritten by us. That's and so right. what, when it comes to it, what's, it all becomes just one massive corporate state. There isn't this difference between governments and corporations. At least that's how I read it. Well, that's right. And these corporations are, are acting themselves eternally as a, as a technocracy. You know, they're, they're very autocratic organizations if you don't fit in you'll be immediately fired they're always searching for that that last yeah. little bit of efficiency and productivity and so on they have ways to track you now uh, you know some companies are even planting chips and hands and stuff 
so that you can get access to everywhere you need to go and if you ever get turned off, you just simply can't get in anymore. Mm. Uh, well, absolutely. I mean, Noam Chomsky says something along these lines, doesn't he? That these corporations function as something like the mini uh, communist states. Yes, that's right. And But you hit the nail on the head. The public treasury is what's in view here. This is a form of, of slavery, really. Because when a corporation figures out a way to raid the public treasury in a country, anything can happen. I mean, it's just it's just crazy. Anything can happen. But the people of the world are going to be paying for their ultimate destruction. That's the bottom line. The taxes that they pay from any productivity they have yeah. are going to be the funds that are used to destroy the system that they made it. Meanwhile, the resources are being uh, put into a global pool. And let me explain that a little further. Historically, money is not wealth. Money is uh, sometimes a reflection of wealth, but money itself is not wealth. If you have, uh, say, 50,000 shares of Apple and all of a sudden, the value of Apple goes from you know $100 to $50 a share. You just lost your money. Poof. That kind of money wealth is very fleeting. A bank can go bankrupt. Your creditors can default. The stock market can crash. Any number of things can happen to take all your money away. So money itself does not make you, quote, unquote, wealthy. But historically, wealth has always been attributed to the land to ownership of property where you have trees to lumber, elements to mine, some way to turn that land into something valuable of wealth. You look at Solomon, for instance, in the Old Testament. You look at Job, what made Job wealthy. Well, he had land and he also had cattle and you know other kinds of herds and stuff on his property. That was wealth as well. It, it sprung out of the land. And so traditionally, historically, wealth has been measured in what you own, the resources that you own. And this is what's up for grabs right now. In my opinion, this is where this is going. Money is not the issue. The paper currencies of the world one day most certainly will be torched altogether. I don't think it's going to be the, the yuan first and the dollar or whatever. They're, all the paper fiat currencies of the world one day are going to go up in smoke. And when that happens, those people who own the resources of the world, that is the land and what comes out of it, those will be the truly wealthy people. And private property right now is just being squeezed out of existence. That excludes wealth being distributed down to the people, just excludes it. So this is the biggest picture that you can pull out of this whole thing is that there is a massive shift of wealth going on in terms of resources of the land. I think in the end, we're going to find this is what it's all about. And we did mention national sovereignty a little earlier on. And you said that those points where they say that they do respect national sovereignty, you say that that's really just lip service. Let me just point out one of these. This is point number 38 in Transforming Our World. This is a quote here. We affirm, they always say we affirm. <laughs> we affirm in accordance with the Charter of the United Nations, the need to respect the territorial integrity and political independence of states. Now, when I read that, I th again, if you just read it and don't think about it, it seems fine. Okay, they, they respect all of that. But actually, it's quite weakly worded. I mean, territorial integrity, I think to myself, can exist you know, without statehood. I mean, a province or, or a county here in the UK has borders um, and, and political 
independence has to be a relative term here, given that all these things that we're supposed to be signing up to, all these things that they want to achieve, we, we obviously we've got to cooperate in some ways. We can't be really fully independent, so we must be interdependent. So what this independence means may actually mean very little indeed. But when I go back to Nafis Ahmed's article, he points out that many groups of people who are very concerned about this 2030 agenda, these goals in particular, very concerned about these goals, that these groups are saying they do actually very little to protect nations against the so-called free trade agreements like TTIP and uh, TPP with those uh, investor state dispute settlements which we talked about here on the program where corporations can sue governments if they feel that they've lost profits and all that sort of thing. If, you know, if a government in a certain country changes its policy so that a particular corporation feels it's lost money, then it can sue that country. So these groups are saying there isn't that protection there. And when I turn back to this document here and I look at point 79 about international trade, some of the way that's worded does actually seem to indicate that they're looking for these sort of free trade agreements to go on steroids, as it were, right across the globe and thinking that that somehow is going to be part of the answer. And of course, Ahmed is saying, well, no, that's the same neoliberal kind of economic fascism that we've been seeing going on that John Perkins talks about. It is. And within these trade agreements, the the main purpose of these is to harmonize regulations across different political entities. And the sleight of hand, by the way, when you talk about political independence, they're basically saying you can have political independence. But political is not economic. They're not offering you economic independence. (laughs) Not at all. They're saying, oh, we'll control that. You can have your own little parliament. You happy? You like your parliament? You can keep it. You like your Congress? You can keep your Congress. They can spin their wheels all they want. But when it comes to economic issues, you will have no say. We will take care of that because we're implementing sustainable development throughout the world. It's a common economic system that will be used everywhere. So your political independence has nothing to do with the economic rights that you've given up or that you're giving up. And that does seem very much in view. This point 79, I'll just quote from it. International trade is an engine for inclusive economic growth and poverty reduction and contributes to the promotion of sustainable development. We will continue to promote a universal rules-based, open, transparent, predictable, inclusive, non-discriminatory and equitable multilateral trading system under the WTO, as well as meaningful trade liberalization. Such a trading system encourages long-term investment in productive capacities. That very much sounds to me like the good old free trade agreements that that are being negotiated in secret. That's right. Boy, that sure makes me feel better, I tell you. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. I'd be facetious of course, so I hope your listeners don't think I'm, I'm really thrilled by that. But these trade agreements, at least from perspective of the United States, these trade agreements have been heavily negotiated by members of the Trilateral Commission over the years. This has been their primary tool at creating this new international economic order that they wanted. Our U.S. trade representative position, which is the chief negotiator for the United States, there have been 12 U.S. trade representatives appointed since Jimmy Carter. Jimmy Carter started this position back in 1977 as president. There have been 12 appointed USTRs since that time. Nine of them have been members of the Trilateral Commission. Nine out of 12. And the current USTR, Michael Froman, appointed by Obama uh, two or three years ago, he's the guy that's negotiated the Trans-Pacific Partnership as well as the TTIP, trans 
uh, whatever the transatlantic investment partnership, whatever it's called. Um, he's the he's the head of the lead negotiator for that. So, you know, are they negotiating for Americans or are they negotiating for the trilateral commission and what their goals are? And I can tell you right now that we know that, for instance, the TPP, Trans-Pacific Partnership, 80% of that is about regulations. It's not about economy at all. It's not about trade per se. It's about normalizing and harmonizing regulations between countries. It's incredible. And, and it's not really about the free market at all. I mean, I think of uh, Ian Fletcher's book, Free Trade Doesn't Work. I think he makes some good points in there where he says that, you know, countries actually became wealthy initially because they had tariffs in place <laughs> and that free trade agreements don't necessarily lead to the wealth of nations. What they really do is they open up markets to the global corporations who have the economies of scale. They have all the crony connections. They go in and buy everything up. So free trade actually opens the door to a kind of global corporatocracy. That's right. That's right. It's been very damaging to to our whole global system right now. But when you view their machinations over the last 40 years in terms of technocracy, you don't always see it every day on every point how it fits. But generally speaking, the pattern is unmistakable since 1973 that what we see today is the exact program that they've been pushing for for 40 years. And they haven't really varied from that. They haven't like gone left, right, you know, up, down, whatever. They just basically have been plodding on in spite of resistance, in spite of failures that they've had, and they've had some. They just keep marching on to conclusion. And now we see this 2030 agenda coming into play. We see the other things around it that are, you know, seem to be working in the same direction. We see all the religions of the world getting involved in it now, uh, like uh, Pope Francis and, you know, all the big churches, the World Council of Churches, whatever. They've all gone green as well, just like the Pope. And they're totally on board with sustainable development throughout the world. This is the biggest global delusion I think we've ever seen since the Tower of Babel. It's incredible. Well, I do want to ask you finally about the Pope in just a moment. But I think it's worth bringing in a a quote which I have used before on this show by Carol Quigley, of course, from Tragedy and Hope, A History of the World in Our Time, written back in 1966. And this quote is absolutely priceless, but it connects with what you're saying. The powers of financial capitalism had another far-reaching aim, nothing less than to create a world system of financial control in private hands, able to dominate the political system of each country and the economy of the world as a whole. This system was to be controlled in a feudalist fashion by the central banks of the world, acting in concert by secret agreements arrived at in frequent private meetings and conferences. I mean, it's just astonishing. Back in 1966, there it is, and it seems to be playing out in front of our eyes. Yes, it does. Yes, it does. That's that's a great quote. I think it's spot on. (laughs) And I don't think that was lost on any of these people have been doing it either. (laughs) I just said I wanted to ask you about uh, Pope Francis. And uh, your second article that you had at Daily Surge mentioned him. You say that this will be the first time in the history of America that a Catholic Pope will address a joint session of the U.S. Congress. This is on September the 24th, 2015. So how does Pope Francis fit into this in your view? Well, he's going to be a great keynote speaker for the United Nations, and um, he's going to soften up Congress. 
giving them, if you will, the, the moral authority, and I use that term loosely, he's going to try to grant Congress moral authority to go along with sustainable development, hook, line, and sinker. Quite a few of them are Catholics, presumably, in, in Congress. There's Yes, there's quite a few of them in our, in our Congress are Catholics, and mm. that's not a conspiracy, by the way. <laughs> no, 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 sure. But, um, well, some people think it is. I, th- I said, that's ridiculous. There's lots of non-Catholics in Congress, too. No, I, I was just thinking from the point of view of the, the kind of influence he might have if people are right. Catholic. They're obviously going to take more seriously Absolutely. as if they're not. You so know. he will be bad-mouthing free enterprise. He's going to be promoting sustainable development. And uh, if there would be any resistance to the president signing this 2030 agenda document uh, before the weekend's over, the pope is going to try to diffuse that resistance. He's going to try to mute it, chisel it down, whatever. And I think he'll probably do a pretty good job of it. I, I don't know who is responsible inviting him. It might have been uh, House Speaker Boehner, could have been. Don't know for sure. I suppose that's discoverable. But I, I don't know who really invited him. But uh, the effect of him coming is going to be huge. And it's, it's going to dazzle Congress to the extent where there will be no resistance to the president leading us towards sustainable development. So whoever did invite him, so you, you don't know anything about that. Nevertheless, uh, they've obviously been very aware of his encyclical on climate change titled Laudato Si on Care for Our Common Home, um, because it very much fits with a lot of these. Yeah. Certainly goals. I'm not sure about the, the actual policies. I don't. I mean, looking at the encyclical itself, I read quite a bit of it. It seems to me that he's very much in line with many of the goals. And of course, as I said before, in a way, who wouldn't be? You know, these look like they're going to be such fantastic goals goals. But I don't get the impression from reading that encyclical that he has much of a clue as to how this can be implemented. And I just wonder whether he's looking at a process like what we've just been discussing and thinking, well, maybe this is a way of achieving it. You know, I think most of the leaders that are coming to the United Nations meeting, I seriously doubt that they have all the particulars in their hand either. You know, it's almost reminiscent of when uh, I think it's going to come down like this. It's going to be reminiscent of the vote that we had in the United States Congress on the health care system that was adopted, promoted by Obama. The document itself, Obamacare, had not been released to the general Congress to read, and yet they were being presented with a vote. <laughs> and everybody kind of knew generally what it was going to do, but nobody knew specifically what it was going to do. And famously, Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker of the House, got up and, and just finally in exasperation yeah. says, look, you just got to pass it to see what's in it. Yeah, it's, it is incredible. Can you yeah. imagine? You just got to pass it to see what's in it. We'll send you a, we'll send you a copy of the book after you pass it. <laughs> you know, this is going to be the, the sense of it, I think, at the United Nations. It's not, well, guys, don't worry about the details. Trust us on that. Yeah, so it's going to be a case of you you, you got to vote for it because, look, the Pope's here. This is the moral thing That's to do. That's right. We just want your cooperation right now. We'll get to the details later. We just want your commitment that you're on board with us and that you're gung-ho and that you're going to cheer when we say cheer and whatever. And we'll fill you in on the details later. You just got to you just got to sign it to find out what's in it. I mean, just going back to that encyclical, I mean, there are a number of things in there I think are really good, actually. I mean, he uh, even advocates boycotting unethical business, you know, having consumer movement power and all these sorts of things, and some of which have been advocated on this very show, you know. And he quotes from Benedict XVI, purchasing is always a moral and not simply economic act. 
respect. And, you know, I couldn't agree more. You know, <laughs> if you're going to buy from a business, you want to think, is that an ethical business? Am I empowering that business with my dollars and my pounds and my euros? And if I think that business is immoral, well, I should vote with my pocketbook, as it were. So, you know, and he talks about it's necessity for people to be changed in the way that they interact with the world. We need to be ethical. We need to be moral. And, you know, who, who could disagree with those things? But again, looking more deeply to find policies that could actually bring about this world that he hopes to find. I just don't really see that depth. And I and I see that lack of depth mirrored in the documents that we've just been talking about. It's all do-goodery. It's all, this is what we want to achieve. We want a better world. We want to change people. We want to cooperate together. We want to bring the whole of society together, business and social life right. and government, everybody cooperating to, to bring about this, as it were, heaven on earth, or no, not everybody calls it that, of course. But when you come down to the details, it's trust me, right. trust me. Yes, yes. That's where you need to dig deeper and go back and look at uh, works like the Global Biodiversity Assessment and read the fine print. They tell you what is sustainable and what's not sustainable. They tell you precisely what it is. Now, I can give you a very, a very concrete example that might relate, your listeners might relate to it, something that just happened in the United States here know, a month ago or so. Mm-hmm. Um, in the state of Oregon, which has been a liberal state, uh, at least the population centers have been liberal, the state of Oregon passed a law recently that was passed, that was kind of promoted from our transportation department, where it's being mandated now that there will be a little GPS device placed in everybody's automobile. And they complain that uh, the, the gasoline taxes that's uh, taxed at the pump when you pump gasoline isn't sufficient. It's not, it's not really equally um, you know, balanced across the, the, the various people who drive, uh, and, and they, they, they envision changing in any case. So they're going to put a GPS unit in your car that's going to track everywhere you drive in your car. And then at the end of a month, it's going to transmit its data wirelessly back to a computer where they will consider your mileage. What kind of roads did you drive on a freeway? Did you drive on back roads? You know, what's your driving pattern in general? And they're going to prepare a tax bill for you based on the miles, the actual miles that you drove. And they're going to send you a bill and they expect you to pay it. Well, aside from the privacy issue of tracking everywhere you went, we found a document uh, at the University of Iowa that was part of a Department of Transportation study on this very issue. And this connection to Oregon, even though it was from another state, was unmistakable. They suggested in the University of Iowa study that the tax bill would be calculated according to your carbon footprint that would be determined from other data that the government has a hold of. <laughs> well, you know, you got to picture this now. Everybody in this state ostensibly could get a customized tax bill that's based on the miles that they drive, number one, and number two, on their own personal carbon footprint. For instance, how big a house do they live in? What kind of car do they drive? How many cars do they own? Do they have a big yard with lots of grass or do they have, you know, rocks and whatever, other types of non-green stuff? How much utility bill do they pay? How often do they travel via airplane and, you know, going other places and stuff? How much, you know, what kind of food do they eat? And so your lifestyle will be measured to find out how sustainable it is according to their goals, right? So you'll have your carbon footprint will be calculated from all the massive information that's being collected by the government. 
and they will compare your tax bill to your carbon footprint and come up with a special rate that you and only you are going to pay. And they'll expect you to pay it. So if you're a bad boy and you like that SUV and you've got a you know 40-acre piece of property, whatever, that you've got cattle on and stuff like that, uh, you know, you just don't fit the mold. You're going to be punished really bad. You're going to pay the highest rate. But if you're a good little boy and you ride your bike to work three times a week and you take the light rail the other two days and maybe you only own one car between the four of you in your home and you live in an apartment or a townhouse that doesn't have any yard and you drive a Prius or, you know, some electric car or whatever, why for you, you might get a rebate. We might, the state might send you money for being a good little boy. (laughs) This is, yeah, this is insidious. It, it is, it's a horrible vision of things. It really is. And it's not really calling upon us to make our individual changes in our lives, is it? It's very heavy-handed, actually. I mean, my life yeah. is not my own. My information is not my own. Other people are telling me how to behave. So in a way, it's not really getting that change of mind and heart that the uh, Earth Charter actually actually calls for. Let me turn back to this Earth Charter because, you know, it sounds so sweet on the surface, but when you think about it more deeply, it's really quite a disturbing vision. Um, Let me quote here, every individual, family, organization, and community has a vital role to play. The arts, sciences, religions, educational institutions, media, businesses, non-governmental organizations, and governments are all called to offer creative leadership. The partnership of government, civil society, and business is essential for effective governance. In order to build a sustainable global community, the nations of the world must renew their commitment to the United Nations. So the whole image that I'm getting there is that everybody must behave the same, everybody must think the same, so we've got media telling us how to think, education is in on this, educating children how to think, the arts are conveying messages that are consistent with this, science also is falling in line, the religious world is also falling in line with these general messages. As I said before, looking at the goals, it's hard to disagree with much of it. But when you actually look at how this is being brought about in this very heavy-handed and collectivist way, it's really very disturbing. I mean, it is it is utopian, isn't it? Very much utopian. And I want to quote from Martin Erdman, who's been on this show, uh, I think it's three times now. And he says in one of his interviews with us, he said that utopianism never works. He says, if people follow the utopian ambition of setting up a perfect world government, the likelihood is very high that they will create hell on earth rather than heaven on earth. Mm-hmm. Historically, this has been the case, too. There have been some attempts to create communes where utopian, uh, the utopian dream will, is put into place, and they've all ended in disaster, every one of them. You know, it's a bait-and-switch, in my view. It's just a bait-and-switch using the grandiose terms to make the, you know, the sugar coating to make the medicine go down, right? <laughs> and then comes the hammer right behind it to knock you out. And if you really look at it, I don't know if you look at it the way I look at it, there's different ways you can look at it. Mine is not all the right way. But from an economist's point of view, I look at this as a scam. This is a bait and switch where one group of people is using words and trickery to take advantage of another group of people. It's just that simple. And I've suggested to a couple of people, I said, why don't they just, if they were just to get honest about this whole thing, you would get an email from them saying something like this, you know, this is, this is so-and-so I'm, you know, I'm writing from Somalia or wherever. And my rich uncle just died in Great Britain 
and he left $10 million to me. And if you'll help me get the money out of the country, I'll gladly pay you a million. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've occasionally had emails like that. You're right. <laughs> I know. So why don't they just say it like it really is? And we'd all just be done with it. <clears throat> you know, okay, we can decide to send you money or not. If you quit sending me emails, maybe we'll send you some money. <laughs> But it's just that simple as scam in the end of it. It's the same It's the same idea. We will give you a carrot that is so compelling that you can't possibly refuse it. And then when we get a hold of you and we get your credit card number, why then we can just start to withdraw money from your account. We don't even need you anymore. And yet, actually, it's the list of goals and this utopian flavor to it all that should be the thing that tips us off. The very fact that that list is there, if you're thinking rationally, you've got to be saying to yourself, there is no way that that's going to be done by human beings in this order of things. You know, this this side of the uh, second coming of Jesus Christ. There's just no way that's going to happen. I know. But a lot of people are going to be taken in by this, obviously, because it's the sweet language. It's very sweet. Yes, and and they really are being taken into it right now all around the world. It's, it's in every community in America right now, Gen 21 policies. It's all over Europe. In fact, the European Union was a model of, a pattern set down by members of the Trilateral Commission for, for the global system. You know, I say as a model, it's not going to be maybe exactly like it, but, you know, do countries still have their own parliaments and their own, you know, governing bodies, so to speak? Yes, they do. But are they represented at the EU, truly? Well, the EU makes all the decisions. So the EU can send in to Italy, for instance, when they were melting down in 2011, the EU sends in Mario Monti, you know, big mucky muck of the Trilateral Commission and the e and the European contingent of the Trilateral Commission. They send Mario Monti in as an appointed prime minister, not elected, appointed, to straighten out the economic mess in Italy. And why didn't the Italians revolt right there on the spot? Indeed, and he even gets called by the media a technocrat. They call as well. him a technocrat on the way in. Same thing happened in Greece. They send uh, what is that? Uh, Papademos into Greece. He is a member of the Trilateral Commission. Mm. And they call him a technocrat when he went in. And why didn't the Greek people rebel right there on the spot? It's, it's, it's really strange. These are the two countries, by the way, that Western civilization is founded on. Yet these are the two first ones that have succumbed to technocracy, if you will. Yeah. And you look at the condition of Greece right now, and it makes you want to cry. Oh, because Greece has absolutely. been broken down as a nation state. And in the process of doing that, the global elite have forced the Greek government to sell off all of their primary assets to be privatized by these very same companies that got them in debt in the first place. It's like, oh my gosh, you know, the Greek people are going to end up with virtually nothing. The government's losing control of all of its social infrastructure. And these people are being, essentially, they're being reduced to a bunch of slaves. We had an interview with Paul Craig Roberts, actually, uh, several weeks ago, and he was saying that he thinks it's quite possible that, that same kind of process is going to find its way across Europe. And uh, that's quite a frightening prospect, indeed. And when I, again, when I turn to these documents we've been discussing, there's somewhere in there where it says they're going to try to make sure that, that kind of thing doesn't happen. Well, it's like this lip service. Yeah. Sentences are thrown in there to make you feel better. But to be quite honest... From everything else I read about it, I don't believe that. I think that, you know, they are indeed opening up the doors to this kind of takeover. I know. You know, when the, when the USSR was still the USSR, their ability to lie was legendary. And for the most part, if you wanted to know what the Russians were really doing or the Soviets, 
all you had to do is listen to what they were accusing everybody else of doing. (laughs) When they accused the United States of violating some big thing and it was a big whoop-de-doo, you could just bet your bottom dollar that that's really what they were doing, but they were just trying to, you know, make the smoke screen float somewhere else. (laughs) Well, Stanley Monteith told me that uh, he'd spoken to people from the Soviet era who, you know, if they read it in Pravda, of course, why would you call your newspaper Pravda? Anyway, um, if you read it there, you knew that that's exactly what was not going on i know so you know we kind of have that same flavor with these people these people that run the united nations basically they're unaccountable to anybody but they have had so many scandals uh internally it's a cesspool of moral failure and these are the very people that are that are trying to convince us that they know best how to run the world. Well, they're not convincing me anyway, that's for sure. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm not, not prepared to uh, trust the world to any group of people, however <laughs> elite they think they are, or however superior and technocratic they feel they are. And in a way, really, I don't want to end on a I mean, really quite depressing note. I mean, everything mm-hmm. we've been talking about here is really quite a downer but ultimately of course we're not looking at a downer because if we look at things from a christian point of view then we do have hope and so could i invite you to end with a note of hope given the faith that both you and i hold in the fact that ultimately god is in charge of everything well he is and you know i have to say that we have no right to assume that this is the end of days right now from a biblical perspective. It could be. There's lots of things pointing to that, but it would be foolish to put God in a box and say, well, it has to happen this way, or this is definitely it. We've had the concept of a black swan uh, brought to us uh, in, in literature by the book Race to the Bottom. And black swan ideas, like a historical event that takes place, it's out of the blue, some disaster happens, changes the course of society or economics, business, whatever. And there have been lots of examples of black swan events in history. But one thing the author didn't uh, account for was if you say there's a possibility for a black swan event, you also have to give some assent that it's possible to have a white swan event. Mm -hmm. That would be something that came out of the blue that changed everything maybe for the better, you see, or that paved the way for something to happen that was good. And a white swan event could come at any time from any direction from anywhere and, and significantly change the situation on planet Earth. And I would gladly give assent to God if he would be the one that would bring such a white swan event, if you will, into the world. And he's fully capable of doing that if that's what he would choose to do. But I wouldn't rule it out and say, well, you know what? There will never be a white swan event because God ain't going to do that, period. That would be dangerous ground for a Christian to get that dogmatic and say that God is not going to do something because of a certain way you understand it. So we don't know the end is all I'm saying, Charles. We don't know that this is the end. And, and we, we might hope that it is and that the Lord will come soon and return. But we don't dogmatically say that's going to happen. So let's just do nothing. So the war is on. The battle for supremacy is on. And they've almost won. There's still a pocket of resistance that could make a huge difference if they get together. And we have the possibility for a white swan event, should God himself decide to send some event into human history that would uh, significantly change the equation? I don't know. Mm. 
Yes, I, I, I take your point there. We can't predict what's going to happen. And even when we look at biblical prophecy, there is a, a certain amount of flexibility in prophecy yeah. that we can't say this is going to be the fulfillment of the Antichrist system, whatever we, we, we might want to call it, because it may not be and it may fit actually better yeah. sets of circumstances that are yet to transpire that we know nothing about. Uh, so I do agree with you. However, if we were to say maybe this is in fact going to turn into the one world order and the Antichrist Antichrist is going to rise. Let's suppose that is the case. Some people would think, well, in that case, there's no hope, because then it really is going to be this horrible system, this dictatorial system. But even then, from a biblical point of view, we have to say there's hope still, because all of that is prophesied, and the story doesn't end at that point. God still has the final word. That's right. He does. And in the Bible, of course, the Christian's hope is the hope of heaven not hope in this earth. And um, for those who, who believe God today, that, uh, that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, 2,000 years ago to live, to be born, lived, died, and resurrected as a propitiation for sins that, that we might be reunited with God, if you will. The hope of heaven is the hope that's been implanted in a Christian's heart. And for a Christian who puts undue hope in the world, in the world system, They'll never see this hope. They'll never experience it firsthand because they'll be disappointed routinely. The world disappoints you. People disappoint you. Governments disappoint you. Technocracy is going to really disappoint you. (laughs) You know, if that's your source of hope, you're looking in the wrong place in the first place. You'll, You'll find no hope, lasting hope in the affairs of this world. So we live in this world as Christians we should not be of this world in that sense that we're going to, uh, you know, we're going to play the game according to how they play the game and that we're going to be compromised and co-opted and everything the same way they're going to be compromised mm-hmm. and co-opted. So we live in it. We're supposed to be salt and light. We're supposed to expose the the wicked schemes of the devil, which is what we're doing with uh, conversations like this. But for, uh, for a true Christian who really puts um, credence into what the Bible says to them personally and to society in general, I think there's ample room for hope. And, and maybe this is a wake-up call for some Christians to reassess their own faith and say, you know, my, maybe the reason I'm feeling so stinking bad about this whole thing is that I got my hope placed in the wrong area. Well, yes, <laughs> maybe it will be. I, one thing I would say is, and I, I do basically agree with what you say, but I think we have some perhaps disagreement over terminology, a uh, very gentle disagreement, um, which might cause confusion, I don't know. And that is when we actually take the ultimate position that the Bible talks about. It actually talks about a new heavens and a new earth. (laughs) So although we're talking about heaven, there is an ultimate state in which God will in fact bring about a restoration of the creation so that many of the things which actually appear in this document, uh, you know, about uh, freedom for all and all the other wonderful things that it asks about will be God who does that ultimately. But it won't be human beings by their own power doing it. It'll be very definitely God who brings that to pass. And we might refer to that as heaven but i think we yeah. just need to clarify what we mean because i mean some people might look at our terminology there and think oh well the, ah well this christianity it's all about yeah. pie in the sky it's nothing to do with the real world well it is it's a transformed world but it's it's not something we do Absolutely. it's not something the elite are going to do yeah. it's not something that even democratic governments are going to do you know it's something that god is going to do and that is exactly. going to be his business and we don't know when it's going to happen that's exactly right. And uh, just which, what we can say for certainty about all the things coming in the future, including the, the ultimate new heavens and new earth, 
is that it's going to be so radically different than what we have today. Hmm. It's just it's just inconceivable almost to to look forward to something like say, man, I can't. I've never experienced anything like that, but boy, would it would it be nice? <laughs> yes, indeed. Yeah. <laughs> Very much looking forward to it. Right. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Well, thanks, Pat, for coming on again. It's uh, as always an education speaking to you. It's wonderful speaking with you, and uh, of course, also the fact that you're a Christian, you know, helps a great deal in these discussions because we don't have to end with that sort of pessimism which can sometimes blight conversations like this. And it's great to be able to look forward to the wonderful hope that is in store there for people who place their faith in God. Um, just before we end, though, can I just ask you to people to how they can get hold of your book? Because I said at the beginning uh, that it's a very important book, which, uh, you know, we had that previous sure. interview about. Um, people may not have heard that previous interview, but may want to read that book. So could you tell people how to get hold of it? Yes, I appreciate that. My book website is technocracyrising.com, T-E-C-H-N-O, C-R-A-C-Y, technocracyrising.com. My blog website is augustforecast.com. August Review and Forecast have been combined into a single site now, by the way. And, of course, the book is available on Amazon as well, and I believe they print in the the UK. Um, So if somebody wants uh, to look on Amazon to see if they can get a Kindle version, if they like electronic readers or – the soft co- soft cover version um, should be available in the UK through Amazon. Dot, was Amazon.com.uk? I forget what it is, but .co.uk. Okay, okay, yeah, yeah. sure. And are you still signing copies? I am. Um, of course, the problem in the UK is that postage is very expensive to get over there. So, uh, if cost is an issue with you, uh, you know, I would check to see if you can buy it locally first. And if you can't, you can buy it from TechnocracyRising.com. Be happy to ship it from here. But the postage will be higher because it's overseas. Uh, so it all depends upon how much people will value your signature. <laughs> That's right. That's right. I, and I, I question that. You know, I don't know. Oh, well, no, I would say it would be worth it, actually. It would be great to have a, a copy of your signature in the book. <laughs> uh, anyway, thanks ever so much for coming on again, Pat. It's been wonderful to speak to you and I uh, look forward to speaking to you again. Great. Great. Thank you and God bless you. And you. <laughs>